Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. All season long, we've been talking about the major contrast between the image the dairy industry paints of itself and the reality behind all that pastoral marketing. Those pictures of red barns and black and white cows versus terrible working conditions, work accidents, and low pay. When you hear the words dairy farmers of America, what comes to mind? If you said salt of the earth types and rolling pastures, I probably would have been with you. But... What about private jets? I'm your host, Dana Geffner, Executive Director of Fairwold Project. In this episode, we're going to talk about the rural vision of Red Barns and how it's packaged up to sell. The dairy business isn't just small farms, like the one that Jim Goodman talked about with Ryan, our political director, in episode four. Dairy is also big business, and while small-scale farmers and workers are getting squeezed, those at the top are reaping the benefits making good money, and riding in private jets. In this episode, Fairwell Project's campaign manager, Anna Canning, talks to Claire Kellaway of Open Markets Institute about all the money and power and influence that's at stake in the dairy industry. Hey, it's Anna. I'm back. And this episode, well, before we get started, I'm going to warn you. The best analogy I've got is probably going to date me, but you know Miss Frizzle and the Magic School Bus? Please let this be a normal field trip with a friend. No way! Well, every story starts off kind of normally, like a regular school bus driving down the road, and then three, two, one, blast off. They're on a whirlwind into another world, like an unseen part of the solar system or the inner workings of the human body something that powers the things that we see every day, but isn't so clearly visible. Well, this episode is that blast-off moment. So far, we've heard from farmer organizers and farmers. And often, the story stops at this. Farmers need more money for their milk, and workers need better wages and protections. Stuck at an impasse. Well, Today, we're taking a trip right into the makings of that impasse, the rigged system that's hurting farmers, workers, and really all of us who want good food and a habitable planet. My guest today is Claire Kellaway. I am a reporter and researcher at the Open Markets Institute, which is a think tank that covers anti-monopoly policy. Anti-monopoly policies keep powerful companies in check. They're the rules that aim to keep markets functioning in a way that's fair, instead of letting big companies bully the smaller players out. But Claire didn't start out working on policy. Instead, she was working for one of the big companies that supply food to college campuses. And I felt like this corporation had dedicated leadership, really believed that business was the way to change the food system, and also served an elite clientele. So they had the resources and the money to invest in the right things. And 
you know, even though they were doing their best, I kept seeing how the market structures and the policies and the rules of the game really shaped what was available, shaped the way they did business. Bad food at college cafeterias is a cliche, but that's not an accident. Since she left her job working for a cafeteria contractor, Claire has done some reporting that uncovers just why it is that bad food is the norm in college cafeterias. The reality is that at every step, the system is rigged to favor the big national and multinational food companies. And even if there's someone in that system with good intentions wanting to buy local food or more fair or humane food, the existing rules make it so that the producers they'd want to work with are all too often locked out of the system. Last episode, Ryan talked to Jim Goodman about his experiences as a small-scale dairy farmer. And over time, he'd observed the market change. Before, there were multiple milk buyers who came into his barn. And then, there was only one. And every year, more farmers like him have fewer options. And on the other side, Say that someone like Claire wanted to buy that small-scale farmer's milk for their institution. The infrastructure to get Jim's milk straight to those markets is vanishingly rare. Claire moved on from the cafeteria industry, but she kept tracing this theme of money and power all through the food system. And what Jim saw on his one farm in Wisconsin has been happening all across the country. The dairy industry has seen a lot of consolidation on the farm production level over the past couple of decades. And that's primarily a huge loss in the smallest farms and a concentration of production onto larger, more industrial farms, often farms that are in like increasingly the Southwest and like water scarce areas, places where it's like, why are we uh, growing? Why are we raising cows here? <laughs> um, how is this, you know, better for the environment than the, the current system or the previous systems? These mega dairies that Claire is talking about are huge. In episode four, Jim talked about how his farm had 40 cows. That was the number that he could care for with just his family doing the work. But these farms in Western states like Texas, California, and Idaho, they're milking 10,000 cows. Even though there are less than half as many dairy farms today as there were 10 years ago, but the average farm is twice as large and milk production is actually going up. Fewer farms, but more cows packed onto them. And more milk, lots more milk. But what's driving this isn't some growing demand for milk. And all of these factors come together such that the price for milk is very low. The price for milk has been below many farmers' break-even point. Um, for at least five, six years in a row. And so farms feel this pressure to survive on volume. Like if the milk price is going to be lower, then the only way I can really make it work is to double down, get more cows, get big survive on volume. And it creates kind of this treadmill where we keep overproducing, uh, even though like there's more milk than anyone wants to use. And then on the other side of that, there's also fewer and fewer buyers of milk that also process milk have more bargaining power. There's fewer of them. They have high levels of regional control. So farmers aren't in a great position to ask for a higher price. You even see 
uh, really powerful retailers like Walmart vertically integrating into milk production, buying their own milk processing plants, which just increases their bargaining power even more. So all this suppresses the price of milk and has been pushing small farms out of business. At every step of the path from barn to store shelf, the pressure is on to get big or get out. That push intensified in the 70s to have government regulators step aside and, quote, let the market decide. And that lack of regulation, it favors the bigger players at every step. The challenges of small-scale farming go way, way back before the 70s. And farmers have been coming together to pool their crops and build power since long before that, building cooperatives in dairy and in many other crops around the globe. Even outside of the challenges of massive corporate consolidation that we've been talking about. Cooperatives are a way for farmers to bundle their product together and bargain for a better price, get a contract, meet a certain supply volume, guarantee supply to a processor, and share things like transportation and and storage. Ever smelled milk left out on a hot day? then I'm guessing you know just how important timely transportation and refrigeration are for the dairy industry. But that sort of large-scale infrastructure is beyond the means of many small-scale farmers. And so, cooperatives have long been an essential part of the dairy industry. But like a lot of agriculture, they've also been facing pressures to consolidate themselves in order to negotiate with like bigger and bigger buyers, or they feel pressure to vertically integrate in the same way that Walmart is buying processors. You also see cooperatives buying processors and taking processing. This can sometimes be really great uh, to cut out middlemen and, you know, share more of the wealth directly with farmers and cooperatively own your own processing plant. Okay. Digression here. But back in the first season, we spoke to Andres Gonzalez of Mandavira Cooperative in Paraguay. And those small-scale sugar farmers were doing exactly what Claire is talking about here, cutting out the middleman. Our dream was to manage most of the production value chain. We realized the only way we could really make a profit was by exporting directly. As a small group of producers, we took an incredible leap forward. We went from being simple producers of sugar cane to being producers of sugar and exporters too. Our idea is to produce and export the sugar ourselves without an intermediary. They started the first farmer-owned cooperative sugar processing mill. And instead of making sugar industry barons richer, they were growing a community-focused food system. They are one of those success stories that I point to One of those moments that shows how cooperative ownership and fair trade can really shift historical systems of who has power and who gets to profit. But things are going a little differently in the U.S. dairy industry. But we've also seen as some cooperatives get really, really big, there can be a conflict of interest when really, really big cooperatives are owning processing if, you know, they're making choices to keep those profits with the processing business, with their executives, with their management, and not actually, you know, sharing that with the farmers. And so, yeah, that becomes an issue where this entity that is 
supposed to be negotiating for you and supposed to be getting you a fair price and making sure your milk in this instance has a place to go might actually be now squeezing you as the, you know, only place where you can sell your milk and possibly the only place where you can process it um, or your only connection to processors and yeah, really um, getting some perverse incentives. This is absolutely not the same thing as the story of Mandavira Cooperative. And the biggest of those mega cooperatives is called Dairy Farmers of America. Through a series of mergers and buying up smaller local cooperatives, they've gotten absolutely massive. 30% of all the milk in the United States passes through this one company. That's a significant amount of the milk market that they control. And that puts Dairy Farmers of America in a very powerful position. Okay, so that magic school bus we started on is now spinning deep in the inner workings of the pipeline taking milk from the barn to the supermarket. To recap, you've got farmers like Jim and farmers way bigger than him too. They often get together to form a cooperative. That cooperative then works with the milk truck that drives around and picks up the milk from the farms. Nobody wants spoiled milk, so they have huge refrigerated tanks to keep it cold. But that cooperative is not necessarily the one selling that milk straight into the supermarkets. Instead, then it goes to the processors, the ones who make it into butter, yogurt, or all the other ingredients that then make their way to the store. And that distinction between cooperative and processor is about to become key to our story. Because in the spring of 2020, the mega cooperative Dairy Farmers of America finalized a deal to buy up Dean Foods, one of the biggest processors out there. Now, this mega co-op just got even more massive. And a lot of farmers aren't too happy about it. All this expansion and all this processing has made DFA perversely interested in getting profits from their processing business as opposed to ensuring that they're watching out for their farmers' best interests. Dairy Farmers of America, that's the DFA that Claire just mentioned, is kind of playing both sides here. So, you know, they are a cooperative. Farmers do own Dairy Farmers of America. Um, and yet, you know, farmers make their money based on their milk check, like based on how much they're receiving for milk. But Dairy Farmers of America, they earn more profits from their processing business. And the lower the price that they pay to farmers, the more money they make. Low milk prices are bad for farmers, but they're good for processors. And now Dairy Farmers of America is acting more like a big processor than an organization advocating for farmers. So they have all these perverse incentives to actually lower the prices paid to their farmer members, even though they're ostensibly the ones who are supposed to be running the show. Farmers feel like they're getting shorted in the interest of bigger profits for Dairy Farmers of America. But there's more. Farmers were also pretty sure that the whole system was rigged against them. Even before Dairy Farmers of America bought Dean Foods, the two had what's called an exclusive supply arrangement. That means that any farmers who wanted to supply their milk to Dean Foods 
didn't have a choice. If they wanted to sell to Dean Foods, who has some 25 brands and a massive reach across 50 states, then you're forced to go through Dairy Farmers of America. The years of Dairy Farmers of America gobbling up other cooperatives and of processors like Dean Foods buying up other processors too, well, all that consolidation means that farmers have fewer and fewer choices of who to sell to and how to get their milk to market. You want a way to get your milk to market? Like, sorry, there's, you know, one or two major cooperatives in your region and they have an agreement, you know, not to poach each other's farmers. And so farmers were just feeling like the democratic processes that should exist within a co-op for them to elect board members and change management and get better prices um, just weren't working. And so they sued their own cooperative, arguing that they were doing all these anti-competitive things that violated antitrust law and colluding with processors to suppress prices paid for milk. That's right. The farmers who owned the cooperative sued the business that they jointly owned, calling it, quote, a milk cartel. There wasn't just one lawsuit, not just a few disgruntled farmers. There have been a number of them across the United States. Leah Douglas reported in The Counter a few years back, chronicling some of those individuals' stories of why they sued. One, to read from the article, complained that Dairy Farmers of America used its control over local milk haulers to prevent him from doing business with anyone else. For another, it was the abuse of food safety protocols. He charges that milk inspectors controlled by DFA threatened him and many other farmers with healthcare violations if they dared to raise questions about DFA's business practices. In short, those farmers were arguing that all the market power that Dairy Farmers of America had built up over the years was being abused. They were rigging the system. And several of those lawsuits were successful. They were settlements, so DFA never uh, admitted guilt, but they've paid out you know, tens of millions of dollars in these antitrust settlements, um, you know, which shows that the farmers had a pretty strong case. <laughs> uh, Big corporations don't just pay tens of million dollars for nothing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it really it really makes a strong claim that this cooperative was engaging in collusive and I, you know, and competitive behavior against their farmers best interest to suppress the price of milk. Collusive anti-competitive behavior. That's the technical term for all that where the Dairy Farmers of America Cooperative was working to limit their members' options to sell their milk. Farmers only got to the point of suing their cooperative after all other attempts at accountability didn't work. More than 7,000 dairy farmers in southeastern states say they were betrayed by their own representative, called the Dairy Farmers of America Incorporated, the largest milk marketer in the U.S. They've got this whole thing structured as a company under a co-op, and yet they tell the farmers it's, it's your co-op. Many at the meeting believe large farms are getting more financial help and yet smaller farms are being pushed to grow and produce much more milk than what's needed, and that's what's lowering the cost of milk. Nothing will wake you up faster to the reality than low milk prices. And uh, I would say that the period that they're going through right now, since it's been the worst since 2009. But these concerns had been brewing for years. 
I think Dairy Farmers of America, like their spokespeople will definitely say like, we absolutely serve farmers interests, like this organization exists to serve farmers. But I think there's a lot of disagreement among the farmers about whether or not that's true anymore. Uh, And yeah, whether or not the cooperative is actually making decisions in their best interest, whether that's taking on, you know, these big risky investments in processing that even though in some ways they harm farmers by like monopolizing the industry, farmers actually like have to pay for those investments. Well, farmer cooperatives exist to build power for their members and stand up to big agribusiness firms. There have long been questions about whose interests Dairy Farmers of America is actually serving. Back in the early 2000s, then CEO of Dairy Farmers of America, Gary Hahnman, got a lot of attention for his high rolling style. He and other executives jetted about on a private plane, so cleverly named Delta Foxtrot Alpha DFA. Get it? He led a string of mergers and acquisitions. And DFA just kept growing bigger and bigger. Meanwhile, in this same time period, the number of dairy farmers across the country was shrinking. The success of their cooperative was not trickling down to farmers. Hahnman and another executive later got fined $12 million for some shady cheese trading deals to illegally manipulate the price of milk on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. There were a few reforms. It sounds like that private plane got sold off. But not too much else changed in the overall power and structure of the cooperative or their business dealings. Cooperatives are supposed to be fundamentally democratic, serving their members' interests. But that's not what was happening here. And here's where things take a turn. We started out this season talking about Chobani and that Fairtrade dairy label they launched with Fairtrade USA. Well, guess who is the actual Fairtrade certified supplier? That's right, Dairy Farmers of America. This mega cooperative that's using its massive power to undercut farmers and squeeze them out of the dairy business, according to those own farmers' lawsuits, they're now certified Fairtrade. One of those big lawsuits was actually settled while the standard was being tested out. Fairtrade Cooperative sure sounds nice. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned the Mandavira Cooperative where small-scale sugar farmers in Paraguay have come together to build their own mill. And how that mill, it's building a stronger community for all farmers and their families. Well, that is not what's happening here. I asked Claire what her thoughts were on this new, quote, Fairtrade dairy label. And she got right to the heart of it. It's a question of democracy and power. I think it's not really clear to me with these standards that workers have a seat at the table. And to the broader question of DFA being a cooperative of questionable governance, I think a lot of farmers also feel like they don't have a seat at the table within their cooperative. And so how is this label then actually meaningfully <laughs> distributing power or like literal wealth? Like how is a premium going to farmers? Is a premium going directly to workers? Do workers have a, a say in these standards? If like Shabani is based in 
New York and farm workers actually have the right to unionize in New York. Like, I don't know, why isn't it required that these farms are unionized? Like, I think that's a great question. Those protections of the right to unionize that Claire mentions here is just one of the victories that dairy farm workers and others won through organizing. And those organizing protections that farm workers won started with Crispian and his fellow workers with the Workers' Center of Central New York, as we talked about back in episode one. The workers won those gains through their own organizing. But Chobani refused to negotiate with them. And they developed this, quote, fair trade dairy program without their involvement. It just strikes me as um, a lot of questions about how this how these uh, premiums or governance structures are actually structured, given that the entities involved have, you know, DFA, a proven history of making decisions that are counter to the interest of their their farmers and focusing on processing profits at the expense of of farmers and so not sharing wealth down the chain in that way, but also farmers having a huge history of labor violations and like really horrid working conditions on these dairy farms. Um, So yeah, like all the entities involved have a a history of poor conduct. Um, And I don't, yeah, I'm not sure how this The label affects the democracy issues within the Dairy Farmers Cooperative or how it affects workers, you know, the democracy issue with workers on farms and workers not having a lot of power on these farms. Claire cuts right to the point. Both farmers and workers are harmed by the consolidation that's happening in the dairy industry. In both cases, Claire points to the root cause, the ability to build power and bargain. In the same way that we're talking about cooperatives and farmers being able to come together and bargain with fewer and fewer buyers, uh, farm workers, unlike other workers, don't have protections to unionize, which is them coming together (laughs) to bargain. Um, And so that is, you know, some interpretation of antitrust are really thinking about like coordination rights, like who has the right to come together and bargain. And this is, you know, this is labor law, so it's not antitrust, but it's another place where, um, in this case, workers like don't have those same bargaining rights. And that really exacerbates these imbalances of power that we're talking about for farmers. in the sense that big processors have the ability to squeeze farmers who then have less money to give to their workers. Who has the power? It's a question at the root of the exploitation in dairy barns and in the marketplace. And addressing that exploitation requires addressing those root causes. When you're talking about this question of How do you give workers a voice on the job? How do you give them more say in in the business? How do you give them, you know, dignity and power in in the workplace? You know, there's obviously labor law and rights that need to be extended to all workers that are not (laughs) equally extended right now. Like farm workers are excluded from those. Um, 
but you also need to be looking at the structure of the entire economy and like who holds power within this supply chain and because of increasing concentration it's power is really hoarded at this this one point um and that you know minimizes the bargaining position for everyone else uh including workers in the first two episodes of this season we heard about how Crispin and the Workers' Center of Central New York and Allies came together to win more protections for their organizing. They recognized that that was the first step in building more power for dairy workers and for other farm workers throughout the state. And in the third episode, we heard from Marita with Migrant Justice about how they have a different approach. Through their analysis, they saw who had the power in the supply chain and that's where they went. Their signed agreement between all those farm workers and the CEO of Ben and Jerry's is their worker-led approach to tackling this question of power. Claire's work looks at the question of how to keep these big mega corporations from hoarding up all the wealth and power. I ask her how she and Open Markets Institute propose addressing this problem of consolidation in dairy. So I mean, to go back to this idea of well, what are the fair rules here? You know, I think we can look at a market and understand when there are too few buyers for farmers to get a competitive price. Um, and so you can then use antitrust to break up markets where there's like not sufficient competition between milk processors, or in this case, like between cooperatives for farmers to to sell their milk. There's a couple of key laws on the books that broadly fall under the heading of antitrust that Claire uses there. And those laws date back to an era that rivals our own for concentration of wealth and power. In the late 1800s, consolidation and corruption were running at all-time highs. You might have heard the term robber barons. That dates from that time. These wealthy industrialists amassed huge fortunes developing railroads, logging off forests, and in the growing steel and oil industries. And they took advantage of labor laws that hadn't really caught up with the Industrial Revolution to exploit and underpay workers at every turn. Then they used those fortunes to buy up more and more businesses and then bend the rules in their own favor. That era sometimes gets called the Gilded Age for the thin veneer of wealth and glitz layered over top of widespread poverty and social problems. If private jets had been around, I'm pretty sure those guys would have had them and flown them all about even as farmers went out of business and the climate crisis worsened. Anyhow, the corruption and massive monopolies that these robber barons built up got to a point where outraged advocates finally forced Congress to take action. Congress passed a series of laws, the antitrust laws that Claire has been referring to. These laws prohibit one company from controlling too much of a given sector of the market, a monopoly, as well as fixing prices or otherwise rigging the terms of business to reduce competition. The Federal Trade Commission was created at this time as well. Their mission is to enforce antitrust law and protect consumers from unfair trading and scammy business practices. Because while the laws date from the days of top hats and horse-drawn buggies, 
The issues of corporate power they sought to regulate are all too relevant today. And one last bit of context here. The term antitrust itself is sort of a relic of that robber baron age. Trusts were legal arrangements that were used to consolidate separate companies into large conglomerates. That practice died out sometime in the early 20th century when the U.S. government just made it easier to create new corporations, making the practice obsolete. But the name lives on, a holdover from old banking deals. You'll also hear antitrust law called competition law or anti-monopoly law. The gist is the same. Rules to keep companies from rigging markets in their favor and to allow for fair competition. Back to Claire, who's continuing to describe the ways that legislators and the Federal Trade Commission could act to address the consolidation in the dairy industry. See, at the end of the day, I think it all comes down to a more democratic economy, one that's like actually like healthily and functioningly <laughs> democratic so that, yeah, these decisions about how much workers are getting paid, their working conditions, how much farmers are getting paid, uh, are just more evenly shared and not housed in a handful of very few, very large, privately investor-owned <laughs> businesses um, that are also not even operating in a anything we would consider a, a fair and open market. It's one thing to try and come up with like a good business that is doing the right thing, paying workers well, fair trade that can, you know, succeed. But like, even then, like, even if you're doing the right thing, there are all these other factors and rules of the game that are stacked against you that don't really have anything to do with whether or not you're doing good business. They like just boil down to like, how much bargaining power do you have? How big are you? How rich are you? You shouldn't be able to compete just because you have the most venture capital investment and can like burn cash to run other people out of business. You know, you shouldn't like be able to compete by just having the most brute force bargaining power so that you can like get the best spot on the shelf. It's really not just a fair open market where you can vote with your fork. <laughs> like, um, there's all these different policies and advantages and regulations we've rolled back that, uh, yeah, allow for those with financial backing, power, size to, to really gain a, an unfair advantage. It's a rigged system from the top. I asked Claire what it would look like to have a truly fair dairy industry instead. Yeah, I think it's one, again, in which power is you know, more properly distributed and businesses conducted in a way where no one is cheating or bullying other people in the supply chain. So, I mean, it definitely starts with the workers. We don't see dairy labor when we think of farm labor, but even a small dairy farm is often hiring workers. Um, and that creates all kinds of problems with like which workers are protected under different uh, workplace safety, you know, provisions. And so, yeah, I mean, it starts at the base with who is doing the work. I think fairness needs to look like workers actually having rights and a voice and meaningful 
power um, within the decision-making of a farm and also within these larger supply chains. It starts with workers getting a fair wage, getting sufficient protections in what's actually a pretty dangerous and stressful industry with really crazy hours and some dangerous working conditions. Uh, but then also more meaningfully having, you know, a say on the job, having representation, having um, a union, you know, having, a, yeah, collective bargaining um, definitely starts with the workers. But then, you know, same goes for the farmers. Like we see these cooperatives form because farmers were looking for ways to come together and bargain for a better, fair price. Um, and I think cooperatives can do that, but you know, you need to be sure that the cooperative is actually serving its members' interests. Uh, and so, yeah, really evaluating some of these cooperatives where you have members expressing that decisions are not being made in their interests and, you know, finding ways either within the cooperative or eventually outside the cooperative um, to regulate that and make sure those are actually functioning. And then I think like on a big picture, it's hard to talk about dairy without also talking about all these incentives and policies that really encourage overproduction in the dairy industry for all these reasons between federal policy and large corporate interests and large consolidated cooperatives, we're having this perpetual system where farmers are just producing more milk than anyone wants. And so this market is, you know, not working. Like it's not, it's producing more than anyone wants. That's it's, it's not functioning. It's not functioning for the public. It's overproducing. It's not functioning for farmers. It's suppressing the price. It's like definitely not working for workers. Remember in the first episode when Crispin Hernandez was describing the constant rushing and pressure he faced throughout his 12 to 14 hour shift? We had to be running from place to place because, you know, the managers wanted to make sure that they had their production. So after seven hours of a session of milking, you know, it was often the case that I would be feeling like I was just constantly falling behind. Always going, rushing. And that rush to produce more and more milk more really than anyone in the U.S. is actually drinking. The theme of supply management that Claire mentions here is one that Jim Goodman brought up in the last episode, too. There is a lot of government intervention in the dairy industry, and it's just a matter of um, how can how can it be correct? Because <laughs> like right now it's, yeah, it's, it's not working in a way that um, makes any sense for, for much of anyone, except the people who want really rock bottom cheap milk and that is these processing companies like like again they make the most money when milk is cheap and these are the most powerful politically powerful entities your chobanis your craft foods your whomever whey powder milk powder exporters <laughs> like these are the entities that make a lot of money when milk is cheap including dairy farmers of america and they're the ones who benefit from this huge glut of milk and milk being produced at a price below the cost of production. Um, and that needs to stop. 
My conversation with Claire took a deep dive into the systems of money and power that prop up the dairy industry. Behind the shared struggles of farmers and farm workers to earn a fair livelihood, there's a whole rigged system. Farmers organize to form cooperatives to bargain for fair prices, share resources, and make their way in the market against bigger businesses. But as we've heard today, this cooperative, Dairy Farmers of America, got away from farmers' control. Money from the new businesses went to private jets and corruption. It did nothing to protect farmers' livelihoods. Instead, as a few at the top of Dairy Farmers of America and other processors got richer, the total count of dairy farmers in the U.S. went down. And here's the kicker for me. This same cooperative that's getting sued by its own farmer members for rigging the system against them, this cooperative is the one that Fairtrade USA has certified as suppliers for their Fairtrade dairy label. We've already seen that this label is opposed by the very workers that this label claims to defend. Claire sums it up so well when she points out what farmers and farm workers have in common here. In both cases, it's a question of having democratic institutions to support their organizing, whether that's a cooperative or a farm worker organization or union to better build power and negotiate. And in each case, it seems like Fairtrade USA has chosen not to align themselves with democratic institutions. I bring this up because the term fair trade has a meaning or, you know, at least it used to. There's actually a whole list of internationally agreed on fair trade principles. Support for democratic and transparent institutions is one of them. But that's not what this label does. Instead of aligning with democratic, farmer-controlled and worker-led organizations, Fairtrade USA has signed off on a label that rebrands the exploitation of the dairy industry as fair. If you work on a farm that's participating in Chobani's supply chain and this, quote, fair trade dairy program, I would love to hear your experience. We'll include ways to get in touch in the show notes. Throughout this series, we've heard from farm worker organizers and a farmer about their daily realities trying to make ends meet and support themselves within the ever-consolidating industrial dairy system. It's a system where more cows are producing even more milk on even fewer farms. It's a system where low prices are squeezing farmers and driving them out of business. It's a system where the constant push for more and cheaper milk is driving labor abuses and keeping the people who milk the cows in unsafe conditions both at work and in their homes. And all of this is for the benefit of those few processors who make more money off of cheap milk. There's no way to rebrand this system as fair. We've heard what the push to produce this glut of cheap milk does to the workers who spend their long shifts rushing around in dangerous environments. Crispin's description of the intensity of the work sticks with me from the first episode. And we've heard the desperate push to get big or get out that pushes out small-scale farmers like Jim Goodman, working with just family labor. Next episode, we'll be talking with guests from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy about what this push to produce more and still more milk does to all of us and how it is a big deal for everyone who hopes for a habitable planet. Until then, stay in touch. 
Follow For a Better World on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And sign up for our newsletter for more ways to work to build a food system that works for all of us, not just those few sitting at the top with their private jets. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Head to our website, fairworldproject.org, to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in the loop with our work and take action to support the movements you hear about on this show. Fairworld Project is a nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations to keep our work going. If you like what you heard or learned something new, consider becoming a monthly donor. Your contribution will help us continue to bring you stories from around the globe. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date between episodes. For a Better World is made possible by our small but mighty team. Our show is edited by Joshua Moore. Katie Gardner is our producer. Anna Canning is our scriptwriter. Our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning. Our music was composed by Mark Robertson. And I'm your host and executive director of Fairworld Project, Dana Geffner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>